1: Welcome to The Human Perspective with internationally recognized badass disability activist Judy Human. This week Judy is chatting with Lydia Xe Brown along with Anna Landre who will co-moderate this episode. This is an absolutely jam-packed episode as Lydia, Judy, and Anna talk about the necessary evolution and growth of the disability movement towards a disability justice framework as we celebrate Disability Pride Month. Lydia XE Brown is an advocate, organizer, educator, attorney, strategist, and writer who lives their life by this phrase by Mia Mingus, disability justice is simply another term for love. Their work focuses on addressing state and interpersonal violence, targeting disabled people living at the intersections of race class, gender, sexuality, faith, language, and nation. They are Policy Council for Disability Rights and Algorithmic Fairness for the Privacy and Data Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology and Director of Policy, Advocacy, and External Affairs for the Autistic Women and Nonbinary Network. Lydia founded the Fund for Community Reparations for Autistic People of Color's Interdependence, Survival, and Empowerment. Lydia is Adjunct Lecturer in the Disability Studies at Georgetown University and Adjunct Professorial Lecturer in American Studies at American University's Department of Critical Race, Gender, and Culture Studies. Often, their most important work has no title, job description, or funding, and probably never will. Anna Landre is a Disability Justice Advocate whose work focuses on the social and legal barriers faced by disabled people around the world. Anna currently serves the Washington DC city government as an advisory neighborhood commissioner and we are so so grateful that she is doing a summer fellowship with us at the human perspective. She is a Truman and Marshall scholar and is about to move to London to study international development and humanitarian emergencies at the London School of Economics. Her advocacy efforts have been featured in outlets including the Washington Post, Forbes, Vogue, and others. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Becca Howell, and Judy Heumann. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, get some snacks ready, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet our guests today.
2: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. My name is Judy Human. I'd like to introduce Anna Landry, who will moderate with me today. We are very privileged that she is working with us this summer. Uh, They recently graduated from Georgetown University. It's great to have Lydia with us today. Lydia, you know that you are known by many as a thought leader and one who says what you believe. On some level, I think of you as a provocateur in the most positive of ways. In saying what you believe, it really allows people to uh, learn about ways people think about some of the current problems that disabled people and society in general are dealing with. Could you please share with us a bit about who you are? And you have so many interests, what some of those interests are. And also, are there things that you're working on right now that you'd like to share with us?
3: This is Lydia. I've been a community organizer, an advocate, a policy expert, and recently a lawyer, and an advocate within the disabled community for more than 10 years. Currently, I work full-time doing policy advocacy, and I also teach as adjunct faculty at Georgetown and American Universities. My work focuses particularly on addressing interpersonal and state violence that harms disabled people, especially disabled people who live at the margins of the margins. My work is focused on intersections of disability with race, class, queerness, gender, sexuality, faith, language and nation, among other intersections of systems of domination and oppression. I'm working on a number of different projects right now. Uh, And I don't really know, like, you know, what would be the best to talk about, but I, I do work in a number of different spheres and I always have. I work at the crossroads and the nexus of disability studies work, of policy advocacy, of community organizing and community building and teaching.
2: Very interesting. Could you just for a moment discuss a little bit more about those who are living on the margin for the audience to understand?
3: When we talk about ableism, which is disability oppression, it's very easy for most people to think of that as a very siloed conversation. You are disabled, you experience disability discrimination and perhaps prejudice, and therefore in addressing ableism, we address the condition of disabled people. But the reality is that ableism itself cannot be disentangled from or separated from understanding other forms of oppression domination, and marginalization. Ableism is itself both necessary for and dependent upon every other form of oppression. And the way that oppression works often, just as it does for disabled people, is by teaching us that it's an individual problem, that the onus of solving oppression either lies with the kind-heartedness of decent people with privilege or on marginalized people to somehow pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and overcome it. And in both cases, those narratives serve to render invisible the mechanisms and the structures of how oppression actually works. And so ableism works in ways that mirror and are in tandem with many other forms of oppression, whether that is white supremacy, capitalism, settler colonialism, misogyny, transmesia, or queermesia, just to name a few. When we talk about disabled people who live at the margins of the margins, we mean disabled people who face the compounded, amplified, and exacerbated impact of multiple forms of oppression in our lives. When, when we talk about disabled people who live at the margins of the margins, we're talking about disabled people who face the compounded impact of oppression and marginalization in multiple forms, the ways in which different forms of oppression add together, are cumulative, create particular and pernicious impacts. We're talking about disabled people who face not just ableism as predicated upon assumptions about bodies and brains, but disabled people who also face the brunt of racism, of classism, of anti-queer oppression of caste-based oppression, of religious-based oppression. We're talking about what happens when disabled people live real lives, which is a recognition that not a single one of us inhabits only a single category of identity or existence. Audre Lorde, who was also disabled, as well as being a queer feminist Black scholar, taught us there is no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we do not live single-issue lives. The work that I do, therefore, seeks to challenge and upend the assumption that when we talk about disability or disability advocacy, we're always inferring that that means only the most privileged people within the disability community. Instead, my work serves to prioritize and center the work, the brilliance, the wisdom, the struggle, the freedom fight, the community building, the innovation of disabled people who face the most impact of marginalization and depression.
2: Uh, Lydia, you once told me the other day when we were kind of talking about what the program would be today, uh, that you knew that you wanted to be an activist when you were about five years old. Could you share that story with us?
3: We want to know what radicalized you. This is Lydia. Uh, I could even say it was younger than five, right? I was just pulling out a number like five, younger. I don't know. I have always believed for my entire life. That each of us has a solemn moral obligation to challenge, disrupt, and fight against oppression, injustice, and violence in whatever form. I've always believed that. Now, the specific way that those beliefs have manifested throughout my life has been different from one point to another. Obviously, how a five-year-old understands the world is generally very different than how someone in adulthood might understand it. There are things that five-year-olds can understand a lot more clearly than many adults. A lot of children have a very innate sense of right and wrong, fair or not fair. Someone takes your snack, that's not fair. Someone hits you, that's not fair. And as adults, we are often taught that it has to be more muddy than that. Well, maybe there was a good reason that someone took your snack. Maybe there was a good reason that someone hit you. And, you know, sometimes there's a point to that, right, that Crimes that we we think of as quote unquote economic crimes are created because of the conditions of exploitation and deprivation under capitalism. If everybody had enough food to eat, then there wouldn't be a need to take somebody else's food, snack, or otherwise. If everybody had enough housing, security, health care, clothing, safety, then there wouldn't really be a need to say, try to steal whatever expensive electronics you have to sell them somewhere and make a quick buck because we would have what we needed. And if someone hits you, it may be that the person who hit you felt wronged by you. It may be that the person who hit you was lashing out in the middle of their own meltdown or their panic attack or because you actually did something to them first and they were responding in defense or maybe they were completely unjustified and they hit you. But that five-year-old sense of something is fair or not fair really can help us as adults and as younger adults remember what it means to seek justice. Justice means what does it mean for everybody to be treated not just in what's fair, but what is loving, what is just, and not just how are people treated, but what are the social and political conditions around us that engender the ability for everybody to be treated justly? And what does it mean for one person to be afforded justice than another? What does justice look like in one situation versus another? And there may not always be clear answers, but sometimes there are, right? And. For me, throughout my life, I've always been informed by that very specific commitment and that very specific belief that it is our duty, responsibility, and obligation to fight for justice. And, you know, I was kind of a weird kid, right? Like I was a elementary school kid who was really wanting to learn about and understand why there was hunger in the world, why there was genocide. Why there were war crimes, why there was terrorism, why there was like war, period, right? Like, you know, not things that many elementary school kids are spending their time studying and trying to learn about and wrap their heads around. And I think the reason why I was so, I was so captured by trying to understand what is all of this shit and fuckery that is happening in the world was because I knew this is wrong. And it needs to stop. And I don't know, you know, I will ever be in a position where i can like, all right, I'm just going to stop something that has literally affected millions of people. But I need to be on the right side of history. I need to be doing the right thing. I need to make sure that my life will serve the purpose of lessening the harm and the violence that exists in the world and engendering more justice, more love. And it's never left me.
2: So Lydia, was there one or two people in your life when you were younger who helped spur this thinking from you? But are there people that you think of in your family or outside of your family who had a similar vision of justice and injustice?
3: I don't know how to answer that question.
2: There kind of wasn't. I think that's even more astounding, really.
0: I think that's a testament to why you're such an amazing figure in the disability justice movement like when we were going to have you on our whole office here was just extremely excited to have you on as a guest because of your vision of the world a world that's anti ableist anti racist anti capitalist and i think another great thing for you to talk about would be what disability justice offers us as a framework as in some ways building upon the disability rights movement and bringing us into a, a, a second disability movement or just a, a deepening of it.
3: This is Lydia. As a child, people in my life didn't articulate their concerns about justice or injustice in any of the ways that I do or in ways that might be recognizable in the same way uh, that we're talking about it now. But for my entire life, the people who I gravitated to as friends. We're also people who are marginalized. Many people who I was friends with as a child, whether in elementary school or middle school, at my actual school, or I met them somewhere else in the library, on the street, in some other program, um, have turned out. I've now learned in adulthood, also came out as queer or trans, have also realized they're disabled or chronically ill, or they were diagnosed as disabled at a young age, but they never told anybody. But I know about it now, and. I don't think that was an accident. Even if many of us weren't necessarily talking about what is just or unjust until about middle school that was happening. All of my friends were people who were concerned about justice or injustice. All of my friends were concerned about oppression and about what was wrong in society. But prior to then, we didn't have to necessarily be talking about it to know about it because it was present in all of our lives, experiencing with our families, in our own lives, what we witnessed, where we went to school or where we lived, injustice is evident because the society we live in right now is profoundly unjust. The society we live in now is unspeakably and indescribably violent. And so I don't have a good answer to that question you asked me earlier because how I was raised and where I grew up was just so different in a landscape from the spaces that I occupy now. Especially because I was raised in a fundamentalist evangelical Christian church. And that's not a space where I would generally ever feel welcome as who I am right now. But it was a space that was basically the extension of my family when I was a young child, because that's, that's how I grew up. Um, so that question's very hard to answer. But in thinking about expanding or changing a framework to disability justice rather than disability rights, I would say that also reflects ways on which my thinking and my understanding of myself have changed too. When I was first involved with disability advocacy, I was only doing disability rights-based work because that's all I knew. And that's all that was available to me at the time. And frankly, it's kind of a miracle, and many of us will attest to that, that I knew anything about disability advocacy before the age of 18, because a lot of disabled people didn't encounter disability activism, advocacy, or organizing until well into adulthood because of the pervasive erasure of disability, disabled narratives, and anti-ableist resistance. But when I encountered disability advocacy, it was presented in a very solidly rights-based framework. And that's what guided my work for many years. And as I have learned and grown a lot from many other people, leaders, writers, organizers within disability and disabled communities. I have shifted my framework entirely over the past decade to that where a commitment to disability justice shapes and undergirds all of the work that I do. And some of the people who've been instrumental that I have learned from include Mia Mingus, Talila Lewis, Leah Lakshmi Kepshna Samara Singha, Eli Clare, Aurora Levins Morales, and Patricia Byrne. Just to name a few of the people who've been doing disability justice work, whose work has taught me that I have learned from, whose work has shaped the way that I do my own work. And I believe very much that the disability community has no future unless that future is rooted in disability justice. You see, the difference is that disability rights teaches us that to change the social condition of disabled people requires us to transform laws and policies. If we can reform existing laws, enforce our existing laws, strengthen our existing laws, repeal harmful laws, and pass better laws, then we'll all be in a better place. But disability justice recognizes that you can have the best laws on the planet. You can even enforce them. You know, how's that for an idea? Have them, enforce them, but that still doesn't mean you've changed anything because you cannot legislate morality at the end of the day. Hey. We've had the ADA now for more than three decades. We've had the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act now for almost half a century, same as the rehab act. And yet. We already know that ableism both structurally as well as interpersonally is all pervasive in this nation. Ableism is in every single aspect of our society and our polity. And so trying to simply change the social condition for disabled people by changing our laws and our policies locally or nationally is not going to get us to the end goal of liberation. That's what disability justice seeks. Liberation from ableism, from white supremacy, from capitalism, from every other system of exploitation, deprivation, marginalization, and oppression. And to get to liberation requires us not just to contend with law, but to contend with society, with culture, with the values that we hold, and the values that undergird the entire framework of the society in which we live. Values about people's worth and values about certain people as not human, as expendable, as disposable. The work of disability justice is so much more far reaching than the work of disability rights. And that is the only place where the future of our community can go.
2: one of the areas that you are well-known for is your teaching. As you said earlier, you're an adjunct faculty at two very prestigious universities in the United States, Georgetown and American University. And when Anna joined us this summer, uh, she talked with us about how she was one of your students. So Anna, why did you decide that you wanna take Lydia's class?
0: Yeah, so I was at first really resistant to doing disability work in any context. I think I had a lot of internalized ableism and didn't want to be the disabled girl who did disability things. And as I started going to college and I was fighting to keep my personal assistance services and I was fighting Georgetown to get accommodations and a place I could live that was accessible, I kind of realized that this was always going to be a part of my life, whether I liked it or not. I was a little bit pushed into it and that this affected a whole community of people that I kind of didn't know existed. So I got to Georgetown and I saw the disability studies program and that resistance kind of turned into, well, maybe this is an opportunity. And seeing people like Lydia teaching at the front of the classroom who were unapologetically disabled who were proud of what they were doing, who were pushing forward the, you know, justice that I wasn't getting, that a lot of my peers weren't getting, was really revolutionary. And I was really excited to be in their class. You know, you can't be in the Georgetown Disability Studies Program without having people tell you that you have to take a class with Lydia. So it was really exciting to get to take their class and learn about disability justice from someone who had who's been such an expert in, in shaping it
2: for me lydia one of the interesting aspects of not only your teaching but teaching at georgetown and american university how did that come about did you reach out to them did they reach out to you and the fact that you're at multiple schools teaching the courses that you're teaching means I think also the university saw this as something which was important and they wanted to engage someone who was not going to be traditional in their teaching. So if you could share with us a little bit about, I guess, a couple of questions. Why were you interested in teaching and how did the relationship with these universities and others potentially come about?
0: Oh, there's a lot we can say about Georgetown's record on disability.
3: This is Lydia. Yeah, I've written about that quite publicly in a a lot of places. Uh, I actually have loved teaching for my entire life. And when I was in high school, I led a fiction writing workshop where I facilitated classes on fiction writing between high school and college. I began teaching classes for MIT's Educational Studies Program, which is an enrichment program for middle and high school students that i had been in as a student. They make classes available for between $15 to $45 for the spring, fall, or summer. And I taught classes on a number of topics that I was really passionate and excited about. And when I was in law school in Boston, I also taught and designed a course at Tufts University, which was the first time I taught undergraduate students in college. And that course is on disability law, policy, and social movements. And it was incredibly exciting to me to be able to teach undergraduate students. Tufts has a unique program um, that's called the Experimental College, where they bring in community leaders, either from local business or local activists, to very different kinds of people, I would say. But they'll bring in people who might have expertise in an area that's not really well-reflected or reflected at all generally in the university's curriculum to be able to teach courses. On a particular topic. I was the second person that I'm aware of to teach a disability studies focused class through that program at TUS. And I taught that class for two years while I was in law school. So when I came back to the DC area um, after law school, I was still very interested in possible teaching opportunities. I'd been in a lot of conversations with faculty and disability studies at Georgetown since I'd coordinated with them throughout my time as an undergraduate student as well. And the director of the program at the time, Libby Rifkin, and I were definitely interested in finding a way for me to continue to be involved with the program. So when the opportunity came up for me to take one of the classes for the Disability Studies uh, minor, now originally it was a course cluster, then a certificate, and now it's a minor. Um, or did it go from course cluster to minor? In any case, it's a minor now. Um, I was really excited to have that opportunity, and I jumped on it. Because not only do I love teaching, which I understand as very collaborative and a way of creating space for people who are learning, which includes me, to be able to learn together, but also because it's a way to get people passionate about perhaps something they haven't necessarily considered either at all, or they didn't consider from an anti-ableist framework, that that opportunity is very exciting to me. And in teaching an American, that also came about through conversation with another member of the faculty there who does incredible work on disability and within disability studies. That's Tanya Aho, who is in the American Studies program there. And uh, that those connections, I think, led to just conversations about what it would look like to put another course in the curriculum um, that addresses disability from that critical perspective. So it was very serendipitous that that opportunity came about. And I'm really glad to be in a place where I can be making a space available for students that offers largely a lot of things that I almost never was able to get when I was a student.
0: And this is Anna. Even the way Lydia runs their classroom is pretty revolutionary because we have a whole host of formats that you can learn in. Lydia always says you can sit in chairs, you can sit on the floor, if you're not doing well one day, you can go and take a walk, you can take breaks, Um, you can feel free to participate in class verbally, or you can send them an email, or you can go to office hours. So I feel like it's a much more accessible classroom than we're accustomed to, even in my other disability studies classes.
2: I mean, it's very clear, Lydia, that you make yourself available. And I presume in some way uh, you've learned through experience and your own personal experience about how you can take information in depending on the day and time. And so being able to give other people permission to be able to learn as they learn best, I think is a really wonderful example. This is really a question to both of you. So, what do you feel students, Anna, have gotten out of being in Lydia's class? And, Lydia, my question to you is Are there people who have come through your courses who you consider now to be people who have learned and are now emulating the type of work you believe needs to happen in order to be moving more towards a justice model? So, if you could think about that. Well, Anna answers the question I asked her.
0: Yeah, I mean, I had a similar um, intro to the disability movement as Lydia and that I had only been exposed to disability rights. And that was the only framework through which I could view anything. And I was thinking we need to make more laws, we need to make better laws at the same time as, you know, I wasn't getting my needs met on disability services, even though the laws were sometimes great. And and there was that disconnect. And I got out of it this new framework through which I look at the movement and I'm a much better activist and a much better person and friend for it. Um, I think another thing I got out of Lydia's class is a friend and mentor. Lydia and I had been friends before I took their class. I met them at a conference um, because they, were swearing at the presenter because the presenter was saying some some bullshit on disability employment. And I went up to them afterwards and was like, I know who you are and I really liked that. Um, and then we were connected and then I took their class. Um, and I think another thing it did was the class was a space for community building for the students. I met a lot of other disabled students. And at the time at Georgetown, I was founding The Georgetown Disability Alliance, which is a place where disabled students can connect for advocacy, for community building, for mentorship. And the classroom space was a really important place for that. And I think we were really able to learn from Lydia in terms of their activism experience and also connect with other communities on campus. I remember once, halfway through class, Lydia had us all get up and go to this sit-in that the Black Survivors Coalition was holding in the Georgetown President's Office. And that was a fantastic opportunity for cross-movement coalition building, because a lot of survivors are disabled. Um, And I think there's not enough of that in a lot of disability activism today.
2: So, Lydia, your impact on students and faculty and changes that you are seeing, obviously not enough of, but Do you feel that the way you are providing information is opening people's eyes to look at how they do their work and their thinking in a different way?
3: This is Lydia. My hope is that my classes can become spaces that offer comfort and also provocation. Comfort against the harms and the violence of ableism and what it teaches us and provocation to challenge oneself, and to challenge the expectation that the way things are is inevitable and inevitably the way that they should continue to be.
2: So we're going to turn a little bit and get into what I hope is going to be a little bit lighter discussion.
0: Something I've been dying to ask, Lydia, you're working on a tarot deck called the Disability Justice Wisdom Tarot. Can you tell us
3: more about that? Yeah. I began work on this project last year when having a lot of conversations about the significance of tarot and how tarot readings are often done by many queer and trans people, not just people that I know, but apparently lots more people as a way of being able to better understand oneself, situate and examine one's life and circumstances and find meaning, sometimes solace, And sometimes provocation, you know, in that same way that I hope to provide in my classroom spaces. But I knew that, you know, while many people have created projects to address a history of many tarot decks representing and centering only white and Western perspectives, even though tarot has often been ascribed specifically to Roma communities in its origins and then taken into medieval Italian usage and then later just more widespread as a divination tool in often very white and whitewashed contexts, that many decks remain representative only of white people, of apparently heterosexual people and gender conforming people and of abled people or at least presumptively abled people. And that even the ways that the major arcana, which are meant to represent significant turning points, moments or experiences in a person's life, are also not representative of and do not necessarily fully speak to all of the major experiences that are common in different marginalized communities. And there have been many other projects within the world of tarot to address ways in which tarot has been used to uphold very white Western-centric representations of the world and of human life and of presumptions about the universality of certain experiences, projects that center queer people in the artwork, projects that explicitly talk through and provide guidance on readings from a social justice, anti-oppression-oriented perspective, projects that rethink what the major arcana might represent. And I wanted to create a project that, has never existed before which is a tarot deck that explicitly centers disabled people of color and disabled people's wisdom as something worth learning from both as a form of recognition and solace for those of us who are disabled and as a new offering and challenge and provocation to people who aren't disabled who've never had to consider what it is to move through the world in a disabled way and you know some of the people that i've drawn a lot of inspiration from include like folks that created the Next World Tarot, our colleague at Georgetown, Mimi Cook, who created an entire tarot around Asian American experiences, and also um, there's people that have specifically created tarot art index and written offerings that are focused on uplifting marginalized communities, either generally or more specifically. But nobody else that I know of who's created a deck that isn't meant entirely to reflect disabled people's experiences. And my hope is that when complete, this project will offer recognition, but also provocation. And the artwork only features disabled people of color, which I am also um, very deliberate about too, just because of how much everything we do assumes whiteness. I'm so excited for it to come out.
0: For those who don't know Georgetown, the disability studies program has a bit of an obsession with tarot at this point. We had Mimi's deck, which I um, bought as part of her class. We didn't have a textbook for the class. We had her tarot deck and it was so much fun. And Then my graduating class this past May, created a tarot card called the graduate to reflect our experiences. And Lydia was there for that, It was lots of fun.
2: So Lydia, let's talk about fun a little bit more. Uh, what do you do to bring fun into your life and into others?
3: I enjoy Ethiopian food, eating it, sharing it, and making it. Yeah. And I also enjoy cooking and baking in general for basically everyone. And one thing that I'm especially excited about all the time is that I can cook and bake for virtually anyone's dietary needs, which is a huge thing in disabled, neurodivergent and chronically ill communities because so many of us have food restrictions where for for many of us, for most of our lives, we've just given up on finding food we can eat. We just assume, I'm not going to be accommodated. People will be rude. People won't believe me. I will be told that I'm rude if I complain or if I say I I can't eat something. So we just assume our needs can't be met. And I think of cooking and baking as a form of offering care to be able to say, no, actually, I believe you. And I believe that your needs are worth honoring. And I want to honor those needs by making you something delicious that you can eat safely and enjoy.
2: So- What I love about this is there are other people who may have the same aspirations, but there are not all people who aspire to have food available for people with different tastes and foods that they can and can't eat presented to them, but you actually produce it. So how did you learn how to cook? Did you just decide one day you wanted to cook for yourself? You wanted to cook for others? Are you an experimenter? Did you start out with Ethiopian food? Was that something that came about over a period of time?
3: Kind of all of the above and just also my mom is Italian and Italians really like to cook. I didn't necessarily learn everything there, right? Because I cook a lot of things that I never had growing up. But trial and error, a combination of I need to feed myself, and oh, other people are coming, I guess I'm feeding them too. And that's just kind of how it's been. I remember one time years ago where I was hanging out with 11 other people, and each of them had mutually conflicting and contradictory dietary needs. So I made 11 different dishes that night.
2: (laughs) Did you ever think about writing a cookbook? I've been
3: asked, Uh, but I don't think it would be very helpful because my directions are things like add more. (laughs) Wait, how much? Just more. Well, what about this? Just a little bit. No, that was too much. Scoop it out. Or just stir in more. I already put in a lot. Add more. That's a very crip style of cooking. And I do that for baking too, which is what really scares people.
2: You are young and with many years ahead of you, and I can see all types of things in your future. Both on the serious and food is very serious. So I don't mean to make light of it. And I think many people really do want to eat food that is enjoyable to them, is spiritual for them. And what I think is important about what you say is many people have given up on being able to get food which is good, tastes good, that they enjoy eating, and feel nourished by it. So I think the work that you're doing in cooking uh, and baking very much follows your overall thinking about transforming the world. So is there anything else that you would like to leave our audience with?
3: My hope is that if you've been listening to this conversation and you're thinking about what you can take from it, take this. Justice is not optional. There is nobody who is not worth it. And that also includes
2: you. And on that note, with love, thank you very much, Lydia.
1: You've been tuning in into The Human Perspective with Judy Human. This week, our guest was Lydia Xe Brown. And the interview was moderated by both Judy Human and Anna Londre. Be sure to follow Lydia on Twitter at Autisticoya and follow Anna at Anna Landre. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Huaren. And the outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. And follow Judy on Twitter at JudithHuman and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. Let's